0: This is July 10th, 2022, and I'm going to uh, talk more in this Taisho about Buddhism as a religion. Uh, that was my last Taisho as well. This is kind of a going further into it. Uh, I see that I gave something similar. My records show I gave a similar Taisho uh, 18 years ago. Um, I hope that those of you who heard it and remember it can put it up with hearing Something similar to today. I'm drawing from a, an excellent book uh, called uh, Simply Buddhism A Concise Introduction. And this is by Houston Smith and uh, Philip Novak. <coughs> this, for anyone who wants to learn more about just Buddhism in general, not specifically Zen, but Buddhism in general, this is one of the two or three that I would most strongly, most highly recommend, Buddhism by Smith and Novak. Houston Smith is an old pal of Roshi, was an old pal of Roshi Kaplow. Uh, Very brief personal story. When I was in my early years on staff, I uh, was in Boston uh, during a staff break, and uh, I got it in my head that I wanted to go visit Houston Smith at uh, MIT where uh, he was a professor of religion and uh, I got as far as his door the door of his office it had in gold you know Houston Smith and I retreated <laughs> <laughs> I told him uh, I told him that once we, uh, I had some contact with him uh, many years later I told him he said oh I wish you had come in Really wonderful, friendly, um, unpretentious guy. So, uh, what what, what I'm going to talk about is uh, here somewhat distinguished between Zen, as such, and Buddhism. Again, remember, Zen emerged uh, out of the soil of Buddhism, and for most of the history, of Zen, it was almost it was, it was a sect it was a, 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 a school of Buddhism you became a Zen Buddhist but uh, in now in this century and in the West um, you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice Zen I think the linkage historically was largely a monastic one That to, to practice Zen you, you became a Buddhist monk And now you can distinguish between the two. I think you could put a uh, a, a slash mark between Zen and Buddhism. Uh, You can practice Zen and not be a Buddhist, but if you practice Zen long enough, you see that it confirms, especially through awakening, it confirms uh, Buddhist doctrine. So here is a a chapter in the book, Buddhism. Uh, The chapter is called The Rebel Saint. And uh, and the authors here speak of... um, uh, There there are six six features. um, uh, He says here, six features that contribute importantly to religion... But equally, each can clog its works. Uh, In the Hinduism of the Buddha's day, remember he's from India, 2,500 years ago, and uh, Buddhism, even scholars will say that Buddhism sort of emerged from Hinduism. In the Buddhism of the Buddha's day, um, these six features of religion had done so, the authors say here, all six of them. The six of them, uh, just briefly now, uh, are authority. That is the, the um, six aspects, you say, of, re- of religion in general. Authority, ritual, speculation, tradition, grace, and mystery. It begins with the first one, authority, that and saying that... Um, authority had become hereditary in Buddhism and in, in a, not, authority had become hereditary in Hinduism and uh, exploitative as the Brahmins, this the sort of the, the ruling class uh of priests, they took to hoarding their religious secrets and charging exorbitantly for their ministrations. You know, uh I have to confess I have to admit that uh in modern Japan uh, Zen has largely become hereditary <clears throat> Zen uh, authority has be- largely become hereditary as well from many sources I've read that uh now uh, to become a Zen teacher you just have to spend 6 months of training in uh in in some kind of a temple uh, and that gives you license to inherit the temple from your father. It's really uh, no wonder uh Zen temples and monasteries are closing their doors at an alarming rate in in Japan. It's not based on it's not based on insight or even even putting in some seniority or some years of practice. It's it's become largely Hereditary father to son. The second uh, aspect of religion he identifies is ritual. And in Hinduism, the Hinduism uh, of the Buddhist time, rituals have become mechanical means for obtaining miraculous results. The third feature, speculation, uh, the authors say it devolved into meaningless hair splitting. Tradition, the fourth aspect of religion, had turned into a dead weight, in one specific, by insisting that Sanskrit, no longer understood by the masses, remained the language of religious discourse. <coughs> Reminds me a little bit, I have to say, of the uh, where Roshi Kaplo and his teacher Yasutani Roshi butted heads over the chanting of the Prajnaparamita. This was right at the onset of uh, Zen Center's um, formation, where uh, Roshi Kaplo insisted that uh, we be able to chant the Prajnaparamita in English, just as the Koreans chanted in Korean, the Chinese chanted in Korean. Chinese, Japanese chanted in Japanese, this Vietnamese chanted in Vietnamese. The fifth uh, aspect is grace. Uh, he says here that <clears throat> God's grace was being misread in ways that undercut human responsibility. Uh, if indeed responsibility any longer had any meaning, where karma. Likewise, misread, was confused with fatalism. And the sixth feature of religion is mystery, which he said is confused with mystery-mongering and mystification, perverse obsession with miracles, the occult, and the fantastic. Now, having mentioned those six things, I'm going to go back over them in a little more detail and, uh, and also, uh, include the Zen perspective. So the first aspect of religion, authority, the, the Buddha, um, taught a faith devoid of authority In his, uh, his attack had two prongs. Uh, on the one hand, he wanted to break the monopolistic grip on authority that the Brahmins had exerted. Uh, this reminds me. Just recently, I learned that uh, many, maybe others of you already knew this, that Martin Luther, uh, what really split open the, uh, gave birth to the Reformation, in large part was his translating the, the New Testament into German. It had been accessible until then only through, through Latin, and the, uh, the educated uh, people of the time uh, were the only ones who could read it. And then he translated it into German, and this just raised hell with the whole church Then the the second aspect of, of, the, of the Buddha's questioning authority uh, was um, toward individuals. Uh, this is a time when, when people generally in India uh, were passively relying on Brahmins to tell them what to do. And that's when the Buddha challenged each individual to do their own religious seeking and rational investigation. And then another part last week I quoted this these famous words of the Buddha. Here's a little bit more to it. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing nor upon tradition nor upon rumor nor upon what is in a scripture. Nor upon the consideration, the monk is our teacher, and that's what he said when he said uh, that each one of us needs to uh, to to put a Zen uh, interpretation. Each one of us needs to put our primary faith in the direct experience. What we find out through our, our zazen, through our our. Our Zen practice, sitting and moving, Zen practice. This can be tricky because uh, uh, there are those who who go too far. Uh, I would say in that direction. Who who say, well, this is this, here. Here's uh, this is my experience, and so that's what is true. Um, there's this phrase out there, um, where two people come to um, misunderstanding of facts. So someone might be arguing that um, the Democrats are involved in, in as a whole, as a party, are involved in uh, uh, child abuse and pizza pizza parlors and 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 uh, no you can't make this stuff up it's so bizarre you know, just look at QAnon so those who believe that and those who deny that and then the first person who believes in the pizza parlors will say well that's your truth this is my truth is there any hope for us so that's the danger is we put it we, we, we just insist that our own particular take on something is the truth so, recognizing that though that that danger, we can we, Zen insists that uh, it's not it's beyond words, it's beyond the sutras, beyond doctrine, certainly beyond dogma. We have to confirm through our our, our experience in in sitting and moving meditation confirm uh, everything. It's really really what the Buddha was saying. In Zen it starts with Kawan number one in the Mu Khan, where a monk asked the great Zhao Zhou, Joshu, Does even a dog have Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhou replied, Mu, which is often translated as no or not which flies in the face of what the sutras say that all what is common to all sentient life is this perfect luminous true mind. Authority you know you don't have to believe what the Buddha said, but if you sit long enough, go to enough sashins, you will see that uh, there it is largely true. And there's here's another qualification is the translations, the first two hundred years uh after the Buddha Dur- during his lifetime and for 200 years after it, there was no written record of what he said, which would be enough to give anyone pause. And and I used to uh, tell myself, well, why should I believe anything the Buddha said, uh, given that fact, um, how it can, how much it can be distorted over time, his teaching. But remarkably enough, I. have only, only become more and more convinced of the, the veracity of the translations of his, of his teaching. It's just stunning, the profundity of, of his teaching. Um, I have less and less doubt about as time goes on. The second, after authority, the second aspect that the authors uh, identify uh, to religion is ritual. Uh, from what we've, the, the texts we have, the Buddha taught a religion devoid of ritual. Um, he ridiculed all the rigmarole of Brahman rites as superstitious petitions to ineffectual gods. This is what he's supposed to have said, the Buddha. To seek to win peace through others, such as priests and sacrificers, is the same as if a stone were thrown into deep water and now people, praying and imploring and folding their hands, came and knelt down all around saying, Rise, O dear stone. Come to the surface, O dear stone. But the stone remains at the bottom. but here too we can we can acknowledge that we do have rituals in zen in fact what religion doesn't have rituals really if it's a religion it has rituals otherwise it's more likely a philosophy but the the rituals in zen such as they are such as let's say um well, let's just pick out something randomly. Uh, offering to hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits. Uh, that whole concept may be foreign to some of you who haven't been around very long, but it's a a, a traditional ritual in in the monasteries and, and in here at this Zen Center and other Zen Centers, where before eating you take a little tiny corner of crust or something, a little bit of, and you. Um, you circle it above your plate three times, raise it up, palm up, and then you place it in what is the hungry ghost, first the hungry ghost and this thirsty spirit dish, a little bit of um, liquid to put in that. Okay, it's a ritual, but, but let's look more closely. It's a way of embodying What? It's a way of of, of first of all of, of reminding ourselves that there are tens of millions of people who are going hungry and even without water when we when we physically do something it's it's entirely different than just thinking about it so it's a reminder that we are fortunate indeed to have food to drink and water uh, but it's also a way of, of reminding ourselves uh, of our own uh, cravings and how we have to be mindful of our tendencies toward gluttony uh, for example it's a kind of a way of embodying a, a sharing a sharing and, and a an awareness of uh, of our privilege, really, and so you know, knowing that the the great, great Chinese and Japanese and Korean masters all did this, um, is meaningful. Is, is 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 meaningful to me, and and uh, I don't need to quibble with it, and I feel, feel responsible for passing this on as a ritual. Same you could say with prostrations. Uh, prostrations are a way to physically embody uh, an attitude of reverence, an attitude of humility, getting the head down. It's very different from just words. and bowing the standing bow get that head down it has it has it matters that's what we're doing we're materializing these these spiritual qualities of humility respect <clears throat> Buddhism has always been not in conflict with the scientific, um, in that it made the the quality of lived experience the final test, as we're just saying, and it directed its attention to uh, natural cause and effect relationships that affected that experience. The third aspect of religion is speculation. Um, and most of you know that we have no use for this in Zen uh, the Zen school of Buddhism. Um, nor did the Buddha really. Uh, the uh, the Buddha, as, as the authors say, the Buddha skirted the the thicket of theorizing. Uh, with his analogy about the uh the arrow uh someone asked um oh I can't remember which which fundamental question it was let's say what, how is it this is one that comes up at workshops where did this uh sense of self come from where where um, where did the is the ego idea come from and um and something similar was asked of the Buddha and he said, well, this would be like uh, a, a man who was shot by an arrow in battle and he were to stop in his tracks and say, I wonder if this arrow was made of ash or maple or oak. I wonder if the feathers were from a quail or a f- pheasant or an eagle. I wonder if the tip was made... From flint, or iron, or quartz, and then, of course, the point being, the the important thing is to get the damn arrow out of you, to take care, to to practically solve the problem of egoistic craving and delusion. But does it matter where it came from? We have this this fundamental uh, delusion of self and other and us and them. How can we see through that? And there, there are, I think, more koans than ever about this matter of speculation where Zen has no truck with speculation. The one that springs to mind is... Uh, where uh, two monks were arguing about a, a flag that was flapping in the wind, the monastery flag was flapping in the wind, and one, uh, employing his own philosoph- philosophical perspective, said, it's not really the wind that's moving. That we see. It's, it's the flag that's moving. And then someone wanted to take issue with that, and he said, no, I, I would say it's the it's the wind that's moving. The flag wouldn't be moving without the wind. And then went back and forth and back and forth. And, and then the, uh, the Sixth Patriarch emerged from the woods, according to one account, came upon the scene and said, it's not the wind that moves, it's not the flag that moves, it's your mind that moves. Fourth feature: tradition. Now, this is this is one um, we have to be careful about. You can see Zen in at least two ways. One is the the method of Zen, which is uh, sitting. It starts with sitting, and then other things related to posture. The method of of uh, concentrating on the breath <clears throat> or koan, whatever. What all, whatever, this is all part of the tradition. The tricky part comes when we have to sort of discern what of the Eastern Asian tradition, out of which Zen arose, what of that tradition is um, salient. What is what is what is helpful to us, as in this case, as us as Westerners. The Buddha, the, the authors point out, the Buddha taught in the vernacular of the people. He didn't stick to Sanskrit. He he made an accommodation to the many people who didn't speak, didn't know Sanskrit, the, the language of the Brahmins. And this is, you could say in a way, is, is um, one of the very two or three primary functions of a teacher in Zen is to make this the judgment of what to hold on to from East Asia and what to let go of. It's an ongoing process. It's the, it's the, say it's the, the central topic. It's been the central topic of every meeting of the American Zen Teachers Association that i 've been to, so really what it comes down to is how do we adapt to the West this uh, this tradition that originated in the Confucian agrarian time of East Asia? My tendency, I think, is to be a little bit conservative with it. <clears throat> Uh, out of concern of not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, as Roshi used to say over and over, that I I guess I fall back on the the, the belief that that in time, what is not suitable for us as Westerners will be sloughed off. We don't have to decide using our conscious minds, our imperfect, uh, discriminating minds, what should go and what should stay. And that having been said, we have made changes now um, that uh, would be a surprise probably, if not a disappointment to those in in the East Asian Zen. The big one, one of the big ones, is... Uh, giving women their rightful place in this tradition this was a, a real um, a real major flaw in, in asian the asian in asian zen chan is uh, really having no place for, for women relatively speaking almost entirely it was a it was a tradition of, of male teachers We've always struggled a bit with the uh, Japanese words for um, instruments that we use here and uh, other other things regarding the ceremonies, the devotional part of Zen. Um, even as recently as a year or two ago, we finally uh, agreed that we can start calling the the wooden block it hangs here, it's suspended outside of the zendo, to call that the wooden block. <laughs> 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 the problem is that it's so much easier to say just han. That's the Japanese han. The han. One syllable instead of the wooden block. Uh, but we're trying. We're trying to do that and other, other things uh, without getting tangled up in something that is cumbersome It's hard. This is hard. What to keep and what to let go. I love the words of T.S. Eliot who said, Tradition cannot be inherited, and if you want it, you must obtain it by great labor. The fifth aspect of religion the authors identify is grace. In uh, in Hinduism it devolved in, over time, so say the academics, into fatalism. What? Why make any effort when uh, we can just rely on the grace of God or one of their hundred thousand gods? Um, the the Buddha had one to no part of this. He taught effort, self-effort and the possibility of enlightenment in this life. There's a charming story in uh, this collection called uh, Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart and the, the, newer, the newer title uh, is... Uh, Soul Food, it's just an, an anthology of stories. And uh, here's the one uh, that I would say involves grace or, or even prayer, where a Zen master was invited to a great Catholic monastery. Uh, he exhorted the monks there to, to exert themselves in their meditation resolve their koans, question with great energy. And if they could practice with this long enough, with enough perseverance, uh, true understanding would come to them. And then one of these old Catholic monks raised his hand and said, Master, our way of prayer is different than this. We've been meditating and praying in the simplest fashion without effort, waiting instead to be illuminated by the grace of God. In Zen, is there anything like this illuminating grace that comes to one uninvited? And that the Zen master looked back and laughed. In Zen, he said, we believe that God has already done his share. then we got to be careful here too because so much of this is is a matter of semantics Um, awakening cannot occur so long as we imagine that we can do it there's no one here to do anything this is the teaching of no self this is the experience of no self. You could say that no, no person has ever done it. It comes to us. It is a kind of grace. But it's a grace that we earn through effort. Recently I was uh, advising someone who's... Pretty new to practice. It was in Doksan. Um, he asked this question that many, many have asked the same question: um, How much of this is, is is effort, and how much of it is uh, relaxing? And and what I said comes from my whole career, which is that we we, we want to find the the equipoise between effort on the one hand and surrender on the other. But we don't have to find it exactly. Again, it's not something we can can construct. It's not a project. It happens through long-term practice. We find more and more of a balance. In the beginning... Uh, We tend to be, in terms of effort, it's one or the other. We're we're either straining with some grasping state of mind to get somewhere, or we're just being lazy, just waiting for something to happen. And then as time goes on, we see that neither of those two extremes is effective. And so, willy-nilly if we persist if we keep this practice going day in and day out month after month year after year we we do find our way to that maybe a kind of a fusion between effort and surrender to the degree that we're absorbed in the breath we are opening and releasing and in that sense, surrendering. To the degree that we're questioning the koan, we will find our way into more of a surrendering to it, to this not knowing. And that's when everything can change. The final, the sixth of the aspects of religion they identify is mystery or as we'd say in Zen, not knowing. They say that the Buddha condemned divination, soothsaying, forecasting, even psychic and other paranormal powers in In some types of Buddhism, uh, a lot is made of of rebirth, sometimes called reincarnation, but more correctly, rebirth, because there's no soul to be uh, reincarnated. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, I from what I gather is a, a hot topic, uh, reincarnation. In Zen, not so much. In Zen, the emphasis is on being present. And this, this was also true with the Buddha. Someone once asked about, uh, he, he was asked once by someone about their past life. And he said, if you want to know what you were in the past, look at yourself now. If you want to know what you'll be in the future, look at yourself now. look at this. There's no point in speculating. Zen has often been called, in textbooks it's often been called, the mystical school of Buddhism. And sometimes it's compared to Sufism, the mystical school of Islam, and other mystical schools. Um, But what what that means, as I understand it really, is it, it rests on direct experience. Of what? Wittgenstein said, that the world is, is the mystical. Walt Whitman, a single flea is miracle enough To stagger sextillions of infidels. This, the mystery of this. And this is, uh, who is it? uh, Voltaire, French philosopher. It is no more surprising to think of being born twice as it is to be born once. Birth, birth, a being, a formed being emerging from another being. What could be more freaky than that? (laughs) This is really the heart of of the Zen school of Buddhism. You know, there are there are other schools of Buddhism that involve memorizing and learning and and um, and speculate probably some speculation and and arguing. Um, In Zen, it really all comes down to this this mystery of of things as they are. And and every particular practice method, the breath practice, the koan practice and shikantaza. Shikantaza is just good solve just um, just basic awareness. Um, they all are can be seen as delivery systems into the unknown. We're trying to not avoid the unknown, not to not to avoid non-void we're trying to to go into the void that in the sense of the not knowing that which is beyond our thoughts our ideas what we've learned concepts notions systems all those things are 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 useful to a to a degree but but sitting at the center of it all is this realm of not knowing And that's what Zen offers at its its most essential, is how to let go of the known and get on better terms with the unknown and explore the unknown, investigate this realm of no thought. Our time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows.